good to see you this morning. Hey, anytime we take communion, we want to bring attention to one of the incredible ministries of this church, and that's the Center of Hope, our benevolent ministry. You got up there really fast, by the way. That's very impressive. Um, Center of Hope Benevolent Ministry. Uh, so we are, uh, you know, remembering the body of Christ uh, that's given for us, and we want to be the body of Christ, and we are literally his hands and feet by meeting tangible needs in this community. The Center of Hope is supported by our budget. Uh, about 50% of their budget comes from just our budget and our general tithes and offerings, but they rely uh, heavily on uh, those who give above uh, the, their tithes and offerings, uh, who feel led in their heart to support that ministry. And so uh, we just want to draw your attention that today. Today, you can give uh, and designate a gift towards the Center of Hope Benevolent Ministry, and all those proceeds will go directly uh, towards that effort. Uh, another way that you can uh, be a part of meeting uh, tangible needs, we have a team uh, heading out next Sunday to uh, New Orleans, the New Orleans area uh, from uh, with our disaster relief unit uh, to continue with relief efforts that are going on there because of Hurricane Ida. And uh, maybe you're interested in going. You can find out more information about that on our website. Site, but uh, even if you're not able to go and you want to help out, uh, you can give a gift to uh, Disaster Relief and those proceeds will go to help our team uh, have supplies and resources and anything given above and beyond that will head uh, directly to uh, the Sin Relief and Florida Baptist Disaster Relief efforts that continued to go on there and in other places. If you're visiting with us this morning, I just want to say how glad we are to have you with us uh, or if you're watching online for the first time this morning that we're glad to have you joining us as well. And uh, we'd love to know you. Uh, I would encourage you to text the word connect to the number that you see on the screen. One of our staff members will follow up with you this week, and we'd be happy to answer any questions uh, that you might have and let you know how you can be a part of our church. Well, well, something that we all need to know about ourselves is that we all view things through a lens. And the lens through which we view things is incredibly important. I mean, we all see different political issues in our country uh, through a lens, through a lens of uh, upbringing, through a lens of the political party we attach to, um, and, and, and so forth. We all see, you know, social media posts and text messages through a lens. In fact, uh, this has greatly changed the way I approach both social media and text messages because I begin to realize I can say like the most like seemingly innocent thing on social media and uh, I get attacked. So, you know, now I get like one or two comments on my post. Two years ago, it'd be like 53 comments. And of course, Facebook reminds you of those things and you go back and you laugh and cry a little bit as well. Uh, so I've had to just say, hey, there's certain stuff I just can't say. And in text messages several years ago, I embraced something that caused me to lose a part of my soul, and that was the use of emojis, because I realized people always think you're mad when you're texting or something, and you're like, I'm, I'm happy, so smiley-faced, here it is, you know, so um, people do that. People take a relation, excuse me, take a lens into relationships, and so relationships in their home, relationship outside their home, they have the lens of, of past relationships, the lens of uh, different things that they've been reading, whatever it may be, that they, they really apply to those relationships, and the Bible is not exempt from this. The Bible is not exempt from the fact that we have a lens through which we read it. Now, I want to be very clear. Your lens doesn't change what the Bible teaches. So the lens through which you view the Bible doesn't change what the Bible actually means. But the lens through which you view the Bible changes the way that we understand it, and therefore it changes what we walk away with after reading it. 
One of the important things about Bible reading and therefore Bible teaching is to try and ensure that we are reading it through the proper lens. If we don't, then the Bible might actually be something we use to become less like God. When its intention is for us to know him more and to live like it. So I think we need to realize a contrast between Bible reading for centuries and and Bible reading today. And I'm kind of speaking on a generalization, but I would say that for most of history, most people read the Bible as a student. They wanted to learn what it said. They wanted to apply what it said. And they wanted to be a disciple, a learner, a follower. And today, a lot of people read the Bible as a consumer. They read the Bible for entertainment. And so a lot of people, you know, historically read the Bible understanding pluralness of the Bible. The fact that it's really to be read in the context of community. Almost every single time you see the word you in the Bible is actually plural. So most of the promises people claim for their individual life are actually not individual promises for us to be claimed. They might have individual application, but they're really a promise to the group of people that God is talking to, his people. But most people read the Bible from an individual perspective today because we live in a Western individualized society. Often people read the Bible with what can I get from this Bible reading this morning versus reading the Bible and saying what can I give? What will God give me, not what does God want from me? And most people read it through this lens of our own personal autonomy instead of with a spirit of submission to the authority that God is in our life. And so when we read today's text, it helps us if we understand that the Bible is written so that people would know that Jesus is Lord and to encourage those who are seeking to live their lives to obey him. That's the purpose of the scripture, that we would see that Jesus is Lord and that we would know how to obey him and we would be encouraged as we obey him. Now, I could probably give this reminder every week because we need it, but today I'm doing this because what we're reading is so familiar. So we're actually going to read two passages. Well, we're going to read several passages, but we're going to focus on two passages, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. The feeding of the 4,000 is found in Matthew and Mark. Now, there's some debate about these two different accounts. Some have said that these two different accounts are actually the same thing, recorded twice because there's a lot of similarities in these two different accounts. Some have said that they are not the same thing because there's actually some pretty stark differences, mainly that one is 5,000 and one is 4,000. And and I would tend to agree that these are two different accounts, and here's why I would say this, that (coughs) there are some pretty clear differences. And then also throughout church history, most Bible scholars, most people who read the Bible Um, believe that they're two different accounts. And Jesus can do this twice. In fact, Jesus could do this multiple times. And I actually believe that that is one of the significant takeaways from us seeing both feedings of the multitude. So with that in mind, and since they're very similar, we'll read through Mark chapter 6, verse 30 through 44. And as we do that, we'll look to Mark chapter 8, and we'll look at some details from the other gospels. And I hope we understand the way that Jesus is with us as we seek to follow him in the life that he's called us to. Let's begin 
Mark chapter six, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. The disciples were having great success in ministry and the crowds were building because of their ministry. Also around this time, the news was spreading of John the Baptist's death and that Herod had heard of Jesus and that political tension was mounting around what was happening through Jesus. Matthew indicates that this factored into Jesus' decision to withdraw from the crowds at this time. So Mark says in verse 32, they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. This is an opportunity for the disciples to rest and let things settle down a bit. Now, there's some debate about where this is taking place. Mark will say that after this, they head towards Bethsaida, while Luke says they're retreating in Bethsaida. There's an early 4th century writing that supports Tagba as the place. We really don't know exactly where this is taking place. Verse 33 says, Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So the disciples in Jesus are crossing the Sea of Galilee to the destination they have in mind on a boat and running on the shore to get ahead of them to where they're going is this massive crowd of people. So verse 34 says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. The writer says that they had, that Jesus had compassion. That means that he's moved in his bowels, that he has this feeling churning in his gut for the people. The only time that this word that's used as compassion here is used and doesn't refer to Jesus or the Father in the Bible is the Good Samaritan, which teaches us how to feel about our neighbor. And Mark says why Jesus felt this way, why Jesus has compassion on the crowd. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Mark is making a connection here. Who else would have this kind of compassion on the crowd? In Isaiah chapter 40 and Numbers chapter 27, 1 Kings 22 and Ezekiel 34, they all paint this picture of God being a shepherd. And Mark is saying Jesus is that shepherd. Jesus is God. And notice what the text says that Jesus did in response to this compassion that he felt. He taught them many things. I think that this is often overlooked when people teach on or read through the feeding of the multitude here. And we skip right to the miracle. We skip right to the tangible need being met. But notice that moved by compassion, Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. Moved by compassion, Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. Many people today focus way more on the tangible needs that can be met, social issues to be met. I remember when I was a younger believer saying, I don't understand why churches always have to share the gospel when they meet needs. Why do churches even have to represent Jesus when they meet needs? Can't we just meet needs? And I said this because, you know, often people perceive Christians as having an agenda. And here's what I would say to you. 
It is okay if our agenda is that we believe Jesus is the answer for people. It is okay if we're very upfront about the fact that, hey, we're going to meet these needs, but we want you to know your greatest need is to know who Jesus is. Your greatest need is to realize the reality of heaven and hell and that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Now, I'm not saying that we cram Jesus or force Jesus down people's throats, that we won't help people if they don't make a fake profession of faith or whatever it may be. But what I am suggesting is that often the reason that we just want to meet needs and not talk about Jesus is because that's the easy way out. Because we don't have to have that hard conversation with people. We don't have to get them comfortable. We just help them. And I would also say that part of the reason that we're often just motivated to meet the physical, tangible needs and not have conversations about the kingdom of God is because we may value the things of this world and a good life on earth more than we really value eternity. So Jesus was moved by compassion and he taught on the kingdom of God. Now, on the other hand, I would say that to be evangelistic without compassion for somebody's condition is also not really realizing who Jesus was. Luke chapter nine, verse 11 says, when the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So Jesus spoke to the kingdom of God. That's what compassion moved him to do, but he also healed people. Moved by compassion, Jesus healed people. This is a thread throughout the life of Jesus that he healed people who were right in front of him. And so he met needs, and we see what that leads to in Mark chapter 6, verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat the disciples came up to Jesus and said hey we know you're on a roll here you're teaching the kingdom of God you're healing people Um, but these people need to eat I mean that's the need that's coming up and we need to eat and we need rest However, what we see take place is something we see consistent throughout Jesus' life, and that is this. Jesus was motivated by the most important mission, but also met an immediate need. Jesus was motivated by the most important mission, but he also met an immediate need. Matthew tells us in Matthew 14, 16, that Jesus replied to them and said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. He says, they've been here, they've been listening, it's late, let's take care of them. Now, I want to move to Mark chapter 8, and the second account of a feeding of multitude, the feeding of the 4,000. Mark chapter 8, verse 1, says, in those days when a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? So in this account, the the crowd has been with Jesus for three days. And they say, Jesus says they need to eat. Um, And he says, "Let's, let's have the meat. And the disciples are like, hey, we're in this isolated place. There's not like Chick-fil-A's right around here. Like, how are we gonna do that? 
And look, Mark, back to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 6, verse 37, is a very similar thing to what he'll say in Mark chapter 8. He answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it, them, give it to them to eat? That's eight months of the average man's salary. You can get a lot of bread with that kind of money. That's a lot of dough. Mmm, thank you. That was, that was quick. They could get 2,400 loaves of bread for this. But this is logistically almost impossible to do in this desolate place, and they would have to go into town to get this bread anyway, and there's only a handful of them, and the disciples need to eat, and the disciples need rest. So look at what Jesus says, Mark chapter 6, verse 38. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Jesus is talking about this need to be met. The disciples are saying, we don't know how we can meet this need. And Jesus asked the question, what do you have? See, Jesus asked the disciples to give what they were able, and he did the rest. Jesus asked the disciples to give what they were able, and he did the rest. In Mark chapter 8, it's a very similar thing. Mark 8, verse 5, he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. Now, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 34, we know that they said, seven and a small fish. And John let us know that it was a boy who had them in the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6. And so Matthew says that Jesus said, bring them here to me. And so verse 39 in Mark chapter 6, he commanded them, all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So this indicates that it's spring in desert Palestine. John actually tells us in his gospel that the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand that confirms that this was around this time. And so in Mark chapter six, verse 40, it says, so they sat down in groups by hundreds, by fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he invited the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Matthew actually clarifies in his gospel, chapter 14, verse 21, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So there were probably at least double 5,000 here. And in Mark chapter eight, verse six, a very similar result, he directed the crowds to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these should also be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And Matthew actually clarifies again that those who were eight, verse 38 of chapter 15, were 4,000 men besides women and children. So there were many more than the 4,000. So Jesus is teaching on the kingdom of God and healing, and it gets late or it's been long that he's been doing this, and there's a need for the crowd to eat, but it's pretty much impossible to meet this need. He asks the disciples to find or get what they have, and they give it to them. And he multiplies it, and he meets the need. 
I believe these accounts are an encouragement to those who are reading the Bible with the right lens, who believe that Jesus is Lord and who want to live our lives in obedience and with Jesus. And I wanted to share several things from this text that I think apply to us this morning. The first is this. The greatest need that we can meet is teaching on the kingdom of God. The greatest need that we can meet is teaching on the kingdom of God. Your life and your church should embrace this if you follow Jesus. You can do a lot of good things. You can give money to schools so that it's as easier to educate young people. You can make sure that kids have Christmas presents. You can help with medical efforts that make people's lives longer and less difficult. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But the greatest need that people have is to know about the kingdom of God and the implications of the kingdom of God on their existence. If you help people become smarter, richer, happier, but you've never helped them realize that all this earthly stuff fades away, but the word of God does not, you have not really helped them see this, their greatest need. And they might be richer and smarter and happier on their way to eternal separation from the God who created them. This is one major reason that we need to value the work of the local church, that we need to be people who worship, give, serve, are plugged in to the local church because the local church is the agent of the gospel going forth on earth. You cannot really read the Bible with the right lens and not see that. And so local believers should be partnering together for the teaching of the kingdom of God and the support of the expansion of the kingdom of God globally. And our church is involved in a lot of good work. We help sponsor several community organizations and teams. We give a lot of money away to help with utility bills. We give to those who are meeting physical needs throughout the globe. There's probably nothing wrong with any of that. But the greatest need is for the teaching of the kingdom of God and to support those who are trying to do that in other places. If we have our church name on every sponsorship billboard and t-shirt and we keep everyone in town's lights lit up and we feed everyone across the globe, but we have not helped people see their desperate need for Jesus, then we just have our name in lights and on t-shirts and people's lights on, and people's stomachs fed, and they're headed to hell without Jesus. The greatest need that we can meet is the teaching on the kingdom of God. Now, the second thing I would say is this, and we see this in the text. The teaching the word of God without trying to bring healing is not thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Teaching the word of God without trying to bring healing is not thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Jesus, when he teaches us how to pray, he says, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so if we are teaching the kingdom of God, if we believe the kingdom of God, we believe Jesus is king, we believe he has come to the world, he's called us to live then on earth as it is in heaven. This should be reflected in our lives. 
There is no hunger in heaven. There is no pain in heaven. There is no sickness in heaven. There is no loneliness in heaven. There is no poverty in heaven, and so forth. And so our lives on earth should want people out of those things. We should be living to see that happen. Our church budget should reflect the priorities of thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our life groups should simply not be Bible studies where the word of God is taught, but they should be groups of people where they're cared for and needs are met. We are not people with a heaven-centric faith, and therefore we just simply live our faith with the thought of where we are going. We are people with a Jesus-centric faith, and Jesus is the king, and he's, this king has come, and he is ruling and reigning, and so our lives aren't about just where we will go, they're about whose we are, and our lives reflect that on earth Teaching the word of God, teaching the kingdom of God without trying to bring healing is not thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And I would also say this, and maybe this is a little redundant, but I think I need to state it to be clear. Neglecting the needs of people for the mission of God is neglecting the mission of God. Neglecting the needs of people for the mission of God is neglecting the mission of God. Jesus connected with people in their need to point them to their greatest need. It is both and. It is we meet people's needs and we teach them about their greatest need. We need to be focused on the important mission but present in the interruption of immediate needs that arise. That's how we live our life and that's how our church should be reflected in this community. Now, I would just say that if this is us, it could be a little overwhelming. But I want us to notice something else that this text shows us. It is not your job to feed the multitude. It is your job to give Jesus all the loaves you have. It is not your job to feed the multitude. It is your job to give Jesus all the loaves you have. Saying, I want to live my life in a way that people realize who King Jesus is can be overwhelming. There's so little time to spend with so many people who need you to have conversations with them about Jesus and about their identity. There are so many things that you feel like you need to do for those or with those who are in your house. There are so many needs from your church. There are so many ways that you can serve outside the walls of your church in the community. There are so many desperate situations in the world that you want to help to give money to or to go and do work for. And then the interruptions can make even trying to do all that so hard. And you want to do all the things, but there is not enough of you. And yet, Jesus has called us to feed them. Jesus has called us to do something about the needs. And it's our job to say, here you go, Jesus. Here is what I have. Here is what I can do. And then depend on him. Donald English in his commentary on this says, it is not the level of our spirituality that we can depend on. It is God and nothing less than God for the work is God's and the call is God's and everything is summoned by him and to his purposes. The whole scene, the whole mess, the whole package, our bravery and our cowardice, our love and our selfishness, our strengths, and our weaknesses. It is not your job to feed the multitude. It is your job to give Jesus all the loaves that you have. And I would say this to you, 
as an encouragement. God has a way of meeting the needs of the ministry and the need of the minister. God has a way of meeting the needs of the ministry and the needs of the minister. When I say the word minister, I'm not talking about ordained, seminary-trained people. I'm talking about believers who understand they are called to ministry. If you don't understand that, it's very clear in the Bible that he's set church leadership not to do ministry, but to equip the saints for the work of ministry, which means as believers, we're all doing ministry, every one of us. And so what you need to notice about what we're reading is the disciples have been doing ministry. They're tired, they're hungry, and Jesus has this crowd, and he says, now meet their need. But after what takes place, they get to rest. They get to rest on the boat, and they get to eat. There's a leftover from the miracle. Donald English says a leftover more than they began with can be both physically true and therefore reflective of God's gracious ways with the kingdom. That Jesus uses us and our weakness and our insufficiency to meet the needs around us by multiplying what we have and he takes care of us as well. Now, I'll say this, and I realize that we need to be healthy and we need to spend time with Jesus, but I think in our society, we've overcorrected in this idea of take care of me first because I don't see the disciples saying, we're gonna eat bread first, then we're gonna go ahead and distribute it. They trust Jesus and Jesus takes care of them. Now, the takeaways from this are good. And I think if you really want to live your life for Jesus, these things we've just talked about are an incredible encouragement to us as we seek to live for him. But the main focus of this passage and the main focus of the Bible is Jesus. We're taking communion today. We're observing the Lord's Supper as our time of response this morning. And as we prepare to do that, I want to look at what John says in John chapter 6. And kind of in light, and what he records Jesus saying, kind of in light of what has just taken place and what is taking place in the life of Jesus. In John chapter 6, verse 14, it says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come to the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, Notice, there's two responses to what Jesus is doing by the crowd. One, he's a prophet. And two, we need to make him our king. And this is the last thing I want to say this morning. If you're looking for Jesus to boost your spiritual pride or your earthly desires, you will miss the miracle of the bread. If you are looking for Jesus to boost your spiritual pride or your earthly desires, you will miss the miracle of the bread. In the crowd, there were those who thought, okay, this is our prophet now. This is the validation of our religion now. And there were those who said, this is the king who's going to give us earthly power now. And again, I, I think that this is the lens through which many people are reading the Bible. They're saying, hey, I'm gonna go to heaven, but I'm a sinner, but I know I'm gonna go to heaven, and so I need a religion that validates I deserve to go to heaven. 
Or they're saying, I have earthly desires that I want. And I need a king who will give me those earthly desires. And I wanna read to you what Jesus says to this crowd. John chapter six, verse 25 through 36. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the God, the God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. And this would be an issue for many. They would see who Jesus is, and they would not believe, because what they were looking for, the lens through which they viewed Jesus was either religious validation or their earthly desires. And what this account shows us and what the Bible shows us is our greatest need is not earthly food. Our greatest need is not the fulfillment of our earthly desires. We have a greater need. And that is not an earthly king who can give us all the things we want, it's a heavenly king who gives us the righteousness that we need. He was the bread of life. And we understand as we observe the Lord's Supper what that would mean. He, the bread of life, his body would be given for us so that we could have eternal life in him. As we take communion today, may we reflect on our greatest need that has been met in Jesus's body, the bread of life. Our deacons are going to come forward and they're going to serve communion this morning. And when they pass the plate and you take your cup, believers, hold on to that and we'll take communion together. If you're not a believer in here today, I would just hope that you would know what Jesus has made possible for you. So I want us to take this time before we take communion together to prepare our hearts and to ask God to search our hearts for any ways that we might be living not for a heavenly kingdom, but an earthly kingdom.
So as the deacons prepare, I'll ask Dan Hinkle, who's our chairman of deacons, to pray for us as we reflect on God. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you now thanking you for what you do in our lives on a daily basis. And Father, as we now reflect on this communion service, Father, may we always remember what it represents, that there was a breaking of the body and the shedding of blood, which is required for remission of sin. And we thank you that that happened, that Jesus Christ went to that cross willingly and paid the price of sin for us to receive your gift. Your mercy abounds. Father, we love you and we thank you. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.